You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. So, hey, I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to Matthew 19. At Providence Road, we've been looking at some of the parables of Jesus. And when Eric called me yesterday in light of everything that happened in Naples, if I would be able to preach today since Pastor Justin Harris was not able to come, I said, absolutely. And this text came to mind. And I want us to look at the story of the rich young man or the rich young ruler. And I want us to read from verses 16 through 30. And it says this, you follow along in your copy of God's word. And behold, a man, he came up to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? He said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you should not murder. You should not commit adultery. You should not steal. You should not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give it to the poor, that you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away awful. He went away sorrowful, excuse me, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of God. Again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Let's go to the Lord in prayer one more time. Father, now that your word has been read, now that we have sang and we have worshiped you and You've prayed and read scripture and shared testimonies. Now I pray, Lord, that as your word goes forth, that the truths found in this text would press upon our hearts. We would not leave this place without understanding what is in here, Lord, so that we could respond rightly, that your children would respond, Lord, with, with the eyes of gratitude, with the hearts grateful because you have done a beautiful thing in Christ as you gave him as a sacrifice, as a ransom for many, for us, the church. 
for those who do not know you, Lord, that they would understand through this story of this rich young man, what's the cost? What, 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 what does it look like to receive eternal life? So Father, bless this time, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You have heard it said that money cannot buy you happiness. We know that principally to be true. As Christians, we know that the Bible teach us, teaches us that the love of money is the root of all evil, that we are to lay up treasures in heaven and not on earth. But do we really believe that? We live in a world that thinks very differently, a world that has great influence over us. We know money cannot buy us happiness, but we do know that money makes life easier. Money can buy us a better car, a nicer house, will provide for us better vacations instead of staycations, help us build a retirement, secure our future. It is true, for the most part, life is easier if you have the resources, money. And if that is true, if that resonates with you, that there's a degree in which that is true, then it makes sense that Everyone, especially in this context, everyone is after it. But what makes this story of this rich young ruler so scandalous is that although wealth can indeed provide an easier life, and it was evident that for him it did, when it comes to the spiritual life, it could do nothing for us. It could do nothing for him. And that is what we find in this story, this young man who has this encounter with Jesus, that he thought that his wealth, that, he, that this wealth had brought him to a situation where, where he had all the resources that he needed at his disposal in order for him to have right standing with God and to receive the promise of eternal life. But we will discover is that this man's wealth was not a benefit to him at all. In reality, it was an obstacle to his spiritual life. The pursuit of wealth, although it may be good to have, will never be enough for our spiritual life, will never be enough for eternal life. In fact, the pursuit of nothing else either, whether it's money or material things or relationships or education or prestige, works of charity, whatever it may be, none of these things are the means by which anyone can be saved and be made right with God. As we look at this text in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has entered the scene. And Matthew, is, his intention is to establish this king who has come after 400 years of silence. The Messiah is here to fulfill the redemptive purposes of God, to offer eternal life. He is the one who has come to fulfill the law and the prophets. He is the one who has come to destroy all the man-centered ways of self-righteousness and finding our own way to the Lord and to eternal life. He says things like this, quoting Jesus, if you want to save your life, you must lose it. But if you lose it, you'll find it. If you want to be the first, you must become the servant to all or be the last. Or lest you become like little children, you'll never enter into the kingdom of heaven. 
And when we read this story of this young man, and as we see it in the other Gospels, as, 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 it, as it has led to this point in the Gospel, we find that in the book of Mark, in the Gospel of Mark, he, he says that this young man who came to Jesus, as a matter of fact, he ran up to him and knelt before him to ask him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Here in the book of Matthew, we just know that he came to him, but Mark tells us the posture that he had. And although we can easily say that there is an arrogance in this young man in thinking that some, that, that, that some way he could earn or buy his salvation, it seems like his disposition is that somewhat of humility or maybe even anxiety or worry. It could be that he's been following Jesus from a distance. He's been hearing his message of the kingdom, and, and he's been shaken in his Judaism. So he ran to Jesus. He, need, he needed to speak to Jesus before he left. He needed to catch him so he could have this conversation with him. And we find that he kneels before him. He calls him good. I can't help to think. How many people in the world are willing to run to Jesus, bow before Jesus, call him good, and know nothing about what it truly means to have eternal life and to be made right with God? Religious people who are doing all types of things that seem very pious and yet miss the point. And perhaps in this room with this many people, perhaps there are some people like this. You're religious, you participate, you check off your church attendance, but you find it very difficult, like this man, with the idea that you bring nothing to the table in terms of your salvation. That you think you are good on your own merit, and surely God is pleased with you on the basis of your effort, or at least that you could just fulfill what is needed. As this man asked Jesus, what must I do? Just tell me and I will. But the Lord loved this man. Because Mark tells us as well in his story of this young ruler, that he loved him. And this passage reminds us that it is impossible for us to receive eternal life through our own good works and merit. And it's only possible through Christ, the Son of God, who came to save sinners who would trust in him. So let us look at this interaction between Jesus and this rich young man. And the first thing I want us to see, the first truth that I want you to write down if you like taking notes, and it is this, that in order to receive eternal life, our sinful hearts must be exposed and dealt with. In order for anyone to receive eternal life, their sinful hearts must be exposed and dealt with. This young man, he came to Jesus with a concern. What must I do to gain eternal life? And he was ready to close the deal. He was confident that whatever the requirement was, he could provide. Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Tell me what I need to do. I will pay for it. I will make it happen. He's a prominent individual in his 
uh, um, hometown and his culture. And Jesus, like a surgeon, how only Jesus can do, he cuts through this man. At first, he exposes his ignorant, his ignorance on how he defines what is good. Here in Matthew, it says, what, what good thing must I do? But in Mark, he says, good teacher. So he's using the word good, first defining that thing, whatever it is, that it is within his reach, which becomes a very shallow, superficial understanding of what good actually is in terms of eternal life. If the good which he thinks he's capable of bringing to the table, that it would allow him to have eternal life, that he's completely missing the very point why Jesus has come. And if he has that shallow understanding of what good is and he applies that to Jesus as a good teacher, he's also very ignorant of who he has before him. If all he could say within his own definition, good teacher. He's got the God incarnate before him. And we do this all the time. We attribute the word good to so many things. I have good kids. I have a good dog. I have a good boss. We eat good food. We enjoy good music. Not because those things establish for us a moral standard of what is ultimately good, but just good insofar as I can relate to it, as I relate to others and find some type of benefit and convenience for me. Jesus is getting somewhere with this man. He's exposing his heart. He's, he is taking his definition of good, which he believes makes him capable of saving himself through his works, to a standard of good that can only be attributed to God. There's only one who is good, only God. And God's standard of good is the only one that matters for eternal life, not your standard of good or mine or our culture's. Only God's standard of what is good. It's the only good that matters in terms of eternal life. And Jesus, again, like a surgeon, because he knows his, his heart, he sets him up by saying in verse 17, if you would enter eternal life, Keep the commandments. You should not murder. You should not commit adultery. You should not steal. You should not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother and love your neighbor as yourself. He brought his attention to the law of God and the fulfillment of the law, the completion law of loving God and loving neighbor, to which he responds in his ignorance and arrogance, all these things I have kept from my youth. And although what he's saying is very arrogant, I don't think he's intentionally trying to be this prideful. He really believes this. In his conscience, he's complied because he's respected and he is liked. In fact, I think it is very possible that as he has come before Jesus, he has knelt before him with a level of sincerity. What must I do? Tell me, I will provide it in his ignorance, as he's been so wrapped up in his Judaism. I think that his disciples who are listening and watching, I think they're actually excited to see this conversation happen. 
Think about this. Jesus, he calls all of them, all his disciples, he called them. Some were fishermen, tax collectors, rough guys. He called them all by name, and he called them, and they came and followed him. But this guy, I'm sure that, I'm sure that his disciples are like, this guy, we saw him run to Jesus, kneel before Jesus. This guy could probably be the, the 13th disciple. He could be our next guy, our next follower. And perhaps we would have seen it the same way. This guy in no time would have won our hearts. He would have been given responsibilities, led a ministry and be a key leader in the church. Why? Because he ran to Jesus. And although he might have had an arrogant understanding or, or, or this self-righteousness, his posture seemed to be sincere and obedient. This guy is like, okay, I've done all these things. I have kept the law. What am I missing? Tell me and I'll do it. But Jesus had a love for him. He told him to do the one thing that he would not be good enough to do. In verse 21, he tells him, well, because the requirement is to be perfect, because as my Father in heaven is perfect, verse 21, he tells him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Jesus exposed his heart in this moment, and he crushed him. Because when this young man heard this, the text says in verse 22 that he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. It's so amazing how Jesus, who is God in the flesh, knows what's in the heart of man. He knew how to speak to this man and how to expose him. He crushes him and exposed his idols. He hit him right in the target. I remember when those Chilean miners were trapped in that mine a few years ago. And I remember watching some documentary how they bored many holes six inches deep trying to reach the place where these miners were at. Days, they were drilling and drilling hours for every single one of these drills to go down the depth that it was required. And eventually upon, I don't know how many drills and how many penetrations, they entered the cavern, the place where the miners were. And when they pull up the drill bit, there's a paper attached. We're all here and we're alive and good. And people started just rejoicing. We hit it right on the spot. This is what Jesus has done to this man. Imagine if Jesus would have said to this man, man, you are exactly what we are looking for. And I, I see your resume. I see your wealth. Man, we can work with you. Let me, let me make sure you feel right at home because you have a lot to offer to this ministry. No, he hit the bullseye. He crushed him. Because he revealed to him that he missed the mark that he could not earn or buy his way to eternal life. What he did was he exposed his idols. He exposed that his great possessions were his gods. He couldn't follow Jesus he was un because he was unwilling to leave behind that which he loved more than Jesus, his possessions. 
He had the pearl of great price in front of him, and he'd rather keep his fallen possessions. He saw Jesus as good according to his standard, but saw his worthlessness when compared to his possessions. He found it a good deal to trade with Jesus his two cents of earthly treasure with the riches of Christ. And Jesus exposed him. Now let's understand this rightly. Many make the mistake of teaching that no one should be rich or have wealth, and that to follow Jesus literally means to sell all your possessions and give it to the poor. But that's not what Jesus is asking him to do, some socialist, communist act of charity for the sake of fairness. No. Because listen, you could give everything up, live the ascetic life, and that would not merit you eternal life. Only having your sin and your idols exposed and you turning to Jesus by faith alone can you have eternal life. These were the idols of this man that kept him from trusting in Jesus alone. It was his wealth that brought upon him the thought that he was righteous, that he had in himself the sufficiency to earn his way to God. So it is the response of every man. When the gospel is preached, people must respond. You who are here this evening, have you responded to the truth of the gospel? Have you been exposed? Has your sin, has the gospel hit you in the bullseye and exposed your idols and your inability to save yourself? Because you could respond in different ways. You could respond with pride. Man, you're wrong about me. I can still make it on my own. Or you could respond in anger. How dare you accuse me of not being good enough? You could respond in sorrow, cut but unwilling to give up. As this man. My question to us this evening is, How are you responding when the gospel is exposing your heart? When you've approached the Lord with some self-righteous act that you think that you could earn your way to heaven? Are you even allowing the gospel to expose your heart? Are you okay with being crushed by the truths of the gospel? Can I ask it this way? What are your idols? that you're unwilling to give up, that you find more valuable than Christ? What are those? Are they great possessions? Is it immorality? Is it pride? Is it the Miami lifestyle and the party life that you're unwilling to let go? Our sister who shared a testimony, she was at that cross point where this was her option. I leave it behind and follow Jesus or I stay here. Do you want eternal life? It is only found in Christ. It doesn't mean that your life will be perfect. It just means that your affections for the one who is offering you forgiveness of sin is found to be of more worth than everything else as we deal with this flesh 
and in this life under the sun until we are fully sanctified and glorified in his presence. In order to receive eternal life, our sinful hearts must be exposed and dealt with like this man. Secondly, if you're taking note, the second idea I want to see from this text, that in order to receive eternal life, we must understand that only God has the power and authority to save. Jesus was obviously not rejoicing at seeing this young man walk away from him. He just knew how much his wealth had become his God and how unwilling he was to give it up. And as soon as that conversation happens, we turn to verse 23. We have a different scene here, how he directs himself to the disciples, and he's discipling them in this moment. He is, he is teaching them how to understand what exactly went down here. And Jesus said to his disciples in verse 23, Surely I say to you, only with difficulty where a rich person enter the kingdom of God. I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And upon saying what Jesus says to them, verse 24 tells us that they were astonished. Maybe because this rich young ruler, he left and he didn't believe the words of Jesus, or maybe it was because Jesus let him go. But probably as they were trying to discern in their own hearts, the, the teaching of Jesus, what, he was, he, what they were hearing him explain to this young man, and upon hearing the illustration of the camel and the needle, they were like, how does this work then? That was amazing to them because in their mind still in this book, they think that Jesus is coming to establish the kingdom. He's going to overthrow Rome. He's going to establish a physical kingdom kingdom in this world. And they come from a background of Judaism where money and wealth and the idea of being charitable and being one who does good works and all the resources that is needed to provide all those things. What do you mean you're asking this guy to give up everything? We need this guy to establish the kingdom. But he was bringing a kingdom in a different way. And I love how Jesus, as he's directing himself to his disciples to explain to them what he just said. It's interesting that the context right before this text is when Jesus is telling them, you, if you want to enter heaven, you must enter as children. When he says, little children, come to me. And actually, in the book of Mark, speaking of the story in chapter 10, verse 24, he calls his disciples children. In other words, he uses a childlike illustration, the camel in the needle, to express, to explain his point. That, every, that even a child would understand. Oh, this young man, he thinks that he could earn his way to eternal life. And Jesus says, no, you can't put a camel through a needle. A child would understand that. You have a child and you tell him something that is impossible 
It is impossible for this to work. You can never put a camel through the eye of a needle. A child would say, absolutely not. Okay. So in order to have eternal life, then, then it's not by works, it's by grace. Okay, I get that because I understand the camel and the needle. But what adults do, they're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's got to be a way to make this work. Somehow we could surely add from our own reasoning and our own thoughts and our own obedience and self-righteousness, because we are talking about eternal life. Surely there are things, and this is why Jesus is saying, hey, look, it is this simple. But it is that difficult to understand because of the idols and the sin and the evil that's within all of us and the lostness. Any child will tell you that's crazy, cannot be done. This is why he, he says, look, guys, it is impossible with man. But what did he say? But it is possible with God. He wanted them to understand how ridiculous this illustration was. They were astonished because their response was, if that is true, then who can be saved? How can this guy be saved? How can any one of us be saved? And the answer is no one can be saved if it weren't for the power and the authority of God to save. Impossible with men, but possible with God. This man could not save himself, but God is in the business of saving people, and he does so according to his eternal counsel and his will through the work of whom? Of Jesus Christ, who lived the perfect life and died the perfect death, was nailed to a cross, and three days later he rose from the dead so that all those who would believe in him would have eternal life. If God doesn't save, no one will be saved. That's the point. Because there's no part of us that has not been marred by the fall. And our thoughts and our intellect and our rationale and our reasoning and outside of the truth of the gospel is foolishness. It's futile. For we know that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This young man was blinded by his own sin. In his mind, he had perfectly obeyed and didn't even realize that his idolatrous heart had already led him to break the first two commandments. And then not having another God before the true God, and to not have idols. Only the Lord can make, can overcome that. Only the Lord, by his grace, can save and bring eternal life. Only the Lord is capable of revealing to us our need of a savior and convincing us that our gods are worthless and unable to save us. Only God can awaken us from our dead state and spiritual blindness and see in Jesus the only hope for us to be made right with God. Only God can make out of dry bones like Ezekiel 37 in this valley. Only he can bring, breathe life into them and put flesh and breathe into these bones for them to live. Only God can make a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. 
And so it is with everyone even today. Oh, the Lord needs to expose our hearts is what he did to this man. To this man. The Lord is the only one who has the power and authority to save. He exposes man, but he's instructing his disciples as they are bewildered, as they are astonished on what these implications are as they have left everything behind to follow Jesus. And the last thing I want to share with you, this last point from this text, is that when we inherit eternal life through faith, we can have confidence in the promises of God. When we inherit eternal life through faith, we can have confidence in the promises of God because these men, Peter, their mouthpiece, Peter, their representative, verse 27, then Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? If it's not about establishing an earthly kingdom, then what is, what's going on here? What What's going to be left with us, for us? What are, what are we going to do? And, and, and the Lord encourages them. He says, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sister or father, mother, or children, or lands for my namesake will receive a hundredfold that will inherit eternal life. Peter's saying, what about us, Jesus? We left everything for you. And Jesus is saying, yes, you did. And I know that to be true. He says, you will be rewarded. You will be with me. And not to explain these verses about the, the tribes of Israel. But one thing I know for sure, if you look at Revelation 21, how the Lord Jesus just honors these 12 men. And he rewards them. In Revelation 21, verse 14, it tells us that there'll be columns in the new heavens, in, in heaven, in the new city. There'll be columns where their names will be engraved, the names of the apostles. Well, the Lord will reward them. Not in this life, in the future to come, but yet... It's interesting that he says that although that is an amazing way, a tribute to these disciples, that even as Peter in his ignorance, even as Peter dares to tell Jesus, what about us? That Jesus already knows how he will honor them even in glory, their names marked on these columns in the new holy city. That he would say something astonishing. That aside from the disciples, that all those who are Christians, all those who would leave houses and brothers and all those who would give up everything and make Jesus the most valuable treasure that they would find in him eternal life and salvation, they will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. It's interesting that Luke says when he speaks of this, of this story he says that they will receive in this life. In other words, the blessing of God, the salvation to be revealed, is not something to wait for in the future, although there'll be rewards and things that even the disciples will experience, and they will be greatly honored. 
what you receive in this life is worth so much more. And what is that? It is just receiving Jesus himself. It's receiving eternal life in this life as we are hidden in him, as he dresses us with his righteousness, as we repent of our sin, turn to him by faith and receive forgiveness of sin and salvation. That is the one thing that we most need that can be ours now. Which then allows us to have great confidence in the promises of God that we can go boldly to him in prayer. Because the Christian life and the life of salvation, the life of one who has received eternal life, although that will be made reality in its full sense in glory, it is ours for those who have trusted in Jesus Christ and more valuable than anything that this world could offer us, greater than possessions, greater than anything. And I pray that you would believe that because how John 1 tells us, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to be children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We can live in this life with a great hope, with an amazing father who we could call, who we could call dad, Abba. We've been adopted into his family. And to have Jesus is to have everything. It doesn't matter what you live in this life. It doesn't matter what we experience tomorrow. We can have confidence because the worst thing that was hanging over our head was God's wrath against our sin, and that would be dealt with at Calvary when we trust in Jesus by faith. Then whatever comes our way, it's less important. It's less significant than the fact that we have been made whole and right before a holy God. Well, well, what could happen tomorrow in this world? I don't know. We live in prosperity, we live, we live in freedom. Tomorrow we might live persecuted and with great need. You know what? Ultimately, it doesn't matter because we have Christ. We could be facing death, sickness, cancer, whatever it may be. You know what? At the end of the day, it doesn't matter if we have Christ. I had a mom at Providence Road tell me one day, her children are already grown, and she said, Pastor, your kids are going to disappoint you, but if they know Jesus, it doesn't matter. Because ultimately, ultimately, when we will be in glory with him forever and ever, we'll look back 10,000 years from now, this blip of a, on the radar of human existence, it won't matter. And yet, and yet, to the point of Jesus, only in him can you find eternal life in the power of the gospel, and yet for those who believe and receive him in this moment in time, in light of all eternity in this life, we can live with that grace and that assurance that we are his. So with confidence, we can go to him because he has promised to do and he, he will take to completion what he has started. Thank you.
thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.